gentlemen welcome this is dump on the ump ostensibly a baseball podcast lately it's been a coronavirus podcast hopefully tonight we'll get back on the baseball wagon this is season six episode 16 coming at you from champaign illinois my name is joel with me tonight as per usual is sam sam how's it going hey joel i'm doing good i'm coming at you uh Still healthy from Brooklyn, New York. My hot take for tonight is that uh, Capsule, the online pharmacy, is fucking terrible. Um, I just saw a ad for Capsule that was like touting themselves as the heroes of coronavirus because they were a delivery company and people wouldn't have to go to the pharmacy um, to go get their medication. And then my girlfriend, who tried to sign up for Capsule like a year ago and had a terrible experience and didn't even ever end up using them, got an email from them that was like, hey, we're really worried about your family. Please tell them to use our service and we will save their lives, essentially. So they're really just like like shamelessly kind of fear-mongering their self to try to get new customers. So you're saying, like, the uh, the pandemic breeds con artists. Right. Yeah. And also, like, my girlfriend tried to sign up for that and, and could not even get a single prescription delivered. Um, I think that the delivery guy, like, refused to come into their building. So Jesus, yeah. All right. So so thumbs so down. Don't use capsule. That's what don't I'm saying. Caps. Okay. It's, they're a terrible company, and they're shamelessly using the pandemic to try to like gain for themselves. Okay. Well, that's deep. All right. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, we also have with us this evening special guest from Hayes, Kansas. Special guest Jay. Jay, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot, Joel. It's good to be here. I'm excited to talk a little baseball. I'm an assistant professor at Fort Hayes State University. I'm a political scientist. Uh, but my, my main focus is cultural politics. I'm interested in culture industries and uh, political and economic regulation of those industries. I wrote a book about the development of the Hollywood movie industry in its early Wait, decades. What use? Uh, starting in its early origins, 1900s, and going up to 1927. So okay. the okay. last chapter right. ends in 1927. So I don't, I don't get out of the silent era, but I look at the economic and, and moral regulation of the movie industry at that time, it, it, a formative time that really lays the foundation for classic Hollywood. But in that book, I discuss baseball. I discuss uh, broader amusements. Uh, I discuss drinking. Um, the saloons and gambling and a whole bunch of other sort of cultural activities that need to be regulated or that that presumably need to be regulated. Um, <clears throat> and so that's kind of my interest and focus in politics. So, Awesome. 
So I bet you are having so much fun right now in the year of our Lord 2020. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess my broader hot take is how unprecedented is this for baseball? Baseball has survived World War One and survived World War Two. Um, you know, they they were they didn't take a season off uh, for for anything, and here we are at a time when the public could uh, sorely needs a distraction of some kind or another. There is no sports going on anywhere, and it, it's phenomenal. I've I've right. never seen anything like this, and um, I think it's sort of. It's it, it definitely is an awakening moment, not just for the rabid sports fans, but for the casual sports fan of just how important culturally sports is to our lives. You know, it speaks to us a lot. And it's not just a distraction. It's not just a soother um, uh, of, of our ills and, and of our boredoms. Uh, it's something that resonates really deeply with us. As I always like to say, sports is an, a, a remarkable cultural artifact because it is unscripted human drama. It's human drama at its finest with its failures and its successes and all of these things. But it's the key is it's unscripted. I mean, that's why you can gamble on it, right? That's why you can go to Vegas and put down thousands of dollars on the outcome of a game. We don't know what the outcome is. We don't know if it's going to be failure or triumph and success. And I think there's something really interesting about that, which makes it very different than a Hollywood movie, of course, which is quite literally scripted. So, um, yeah. So to have baseball taken from us at this time um, is painful, but it also crystallizes some of what makes sports sports and why it's so important to us. Fuck yeah. So that's my hot take. Play baseball in front of robots. (laughs) Oh, I'm excited. Okay, this podcast has gone on the record of saying that we should bring baseball back for the good of the American spirit. Well, here... Here's another hot take about that. I've been watching the news on that, and Major League Baseball really wants to play without any fans in the stadiums. I don't think it's going to happen. And the key reason why it's not going to happen is that players are not going to take a cut. And the owners want to give them a 40% cut because 40% of their revenue comes from ticket sales and in-stadium sales, concessions, merchandise, other things. So owners want to pay players 40% less because they're taking in 40% less and the players aren't going to accept that. So I think it's a near impossibility that they're, that they're going to bring back baseball. I know they've been talking about like quarantining players in Arizona and then, and then playing, playing uh, games without any fans, but I don't see it happening. So the other thing about this podcast that everybody knows is that I'm a union man. Uh huh. So if the union doesn't want to take a cut, the union's not going to take a cut. Yep, yep. And the, and the players' union is strong. Right. I teach a class on baseball. This term, I'm teaching a class on baseball and uh, the politics of baseball, if you will. And we talked in great detail about um, the reserve clause and then the destruction of the reserve clause and the, and the creation of free agency and, and baseball unions in the 1970s. It's a long and complicated process. At the end of the line... One of the most fascinating elements of this, I'll just throw this out there, is that um, right at the end, right when the owners uh, broke and the dam broke and they're like, okay, fine, reserve clause is gone, they were willing to agree to free agency for every single pro ball player at the end of every single season. The reason why is because they weren't really paying attention. They had no idea the implications. They were so busy fighting the legal battle 
um, to keep the reserve clause and to uh, keep ballplayers from from uh, forming a union and having any kind of free agency, that they weren't even really thinking long term about, OK, what happens if we don't have this anymore? What happens if we do have free agency? And it was actually the players union who stepped in and were like, no, 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 wait, hold on. You guys got it all wrong. Do you realize what would happen if every ball player were a free agent after every season? It would be total fucking chaos, right? right. I mean, right. it would be massive chaos. Players themselves need some sense of stability of like, you know, if I'm going to go back to the ball club that I've been playing for, that is predicated on a lot of things. Like, you know, their, their family lives there, that other ball players are playing there, you know. And so to throw everything up into the air at the end of every season is completely untenable. And it's sort of a hilarious historical footnote that the owners had no idea the implications of this. And it took the union to pull back and be like, no, 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 wait a second. We'll have, we should have like, we should have free agency staggered. We, you know, we'll still have, we'll still have year, you know, multi, multi-year contracts. Um, not every player should be a free agent right away, et cetera, et cetera, because it didn't benefit them. Yeah, four years. Yeah, four years. Yeah. Right. Um, Okay, I'm going to cut you off there because we got to talk about the Vietnam War. Yes. But at a future date, we have to talk about Mike Trout. Yeah, I'm uh, down. Okay. I need to know your opinion. Maybe at the end of this podcast because okay. that guy, the weatherman, blows my mind. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, uh, let me get some quick plugs in real quick. Uh, again, this is a dump on the ump ostensibly a baseball podcast last week we had special guest thomas on the podcast from seattle thank you thomas we talked about the b block book club i know you all skipped that episode but you should not because it was actually really fucking good this time excuse me we talked about earl weaver and the baltimore orioles we'll probably talk about earl weaver a little bit again today honestly Shout out to everybody who listened to last week's podcast. Champaign, Illinois, Mountain View, California, Seattle, Washington, Cincinnati, Ohio. I have one Tupperware of bacteria and fungi-filled Cincinnati chili sitting in the back of my refrigerator right now. Yuck. (laughs) Every day I look at it. And every day I'm like, is this the day I'm going to dump that out? And I have yet... To dump out that Tupperware. <laughs> How old is it? Yeah, four to six weeks. Okay, not too bad. You got a ways to go. I it, only like it's inedible. Like, it's at inedible. the beginning of the quarantine. I threw away my leftover Super Bowl chili. So okay, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> yeah. But like, I'm. I just don't want to open the Tupperware and have that like exhalation of of uh, uh uh what's the thing that kills strep throat antibiotics uh, yeah. yeah yeah you know what i'm talking about uh a penicillin that's uh-huh. what I was uh-huh. that penicillin <laughs> exhalation when you open the back the the bacteria filled tupperware of <laughs> cincinnati chili just toss the tupperware with the chili sometimes i've done that before I may be yeah. at that point. It's not worth it. You don't want to watch that dish. Good yeah. fucking Tupperware, though. Uh, yeah, tough call. It's a tough call. <laughs> tough call. 
<laughs> Toledo, Ohio, Baghdad, Iraq, uh, Doha, Qatar, Brooklyn, New York, Bronx, New York, Dublin, Ireland. Thank you so much for listening. Continue to listen. Follow us on Twitter at Dump on the Ump. Facebook, we have a Facebook page. Um, SoundCloud, you know the drill. Like us, review us. I got to say one thing before we move on. Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, just said that sports constitutes any central business. I saw that. Therefore, the WWE is allowed to continue their quote-unquote business operations yeah. in the state of Florida. It, it's, a, it's sort of a mind-blower in and of itself because, right. because re- professional wrestling is a questionable sport, to say the least. Um, it, it's by definition entertainment. It's by definition not a sport, correct? Yeah. Yeah, it's and as I was saying before about unscripted human drama, well, that is obviously very scripted human right. drama for the most part. Um, maybe not very scripted, but it's scripted. And uh, I saw that, and I was just it sort of blew my mind because um, because uh, uh, what a call to make at a time when there liter- there's no sports going on at all. All the sports are shut down except right, for. But that's the reason, right? Like we're big. We're, we're this podcast is friends of. Uh, Vince McMahon. He is our personal friend. (laughs) And what goddamn strings is he pulling to get WWE wrestling allowed in the state of Florida right now? Insiders. Insiders. Well, he's boys with Trump, though. Yeah. Yeah. And Trump's a big Florida guy. So it's like, you know, Jupiter. There's a Jupiter connection there, probably. Yeah. Right. Uh, and so, here's my thing, though. I canceled my spring break trip to Fort Myers, Florida to watch baseball because baseball got canceled. Mm. Does the governor of Florida owe me a rebate? Yeah, I think yes. he write a letter. Yes. Yes. The I, answer is yes. The letter writing campaign shall commence. It include include the original receipt of your of your airfare and yeah. any other expenses that you you paid. Airbnb, rental call. Yep. The ticket to a Pirates Red Sox game for some yep. fucking reason. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> Pirates and Red Sox never have. Uh, no, I take that back. They've the got to have played World Series, nineteen oh three. There you go. That's why. That's right. All right. All right. I'm done. Okay. Exhale. I'm so angry about this. I'm so angry about everything that's happening in the country right now. But I'm going to. Hold on. I got to just add one more thing to what we were just talking about. Okay. Because you were talking about the WWE being scripted. And then I was like, oh, how sweet of a job would it be to be the person who's writing the script for the WWE? But then it's like, you write, you know, some script and one of the guys doesn't like it and then they storm into your office, you know, and then that's like a terrifying situation, you know? (laughs) It's not just like normal celebrity, like, breakdown, like diva. It's like, this is a 350-pound muscle man who's going to, like, 
who breaks tables for a living, you know? Right. Well, there's a guy on Twitter, the Hangman. I wish I could remember. His first name's Adam. Or his stage first name is Adam. That's not actually his real name. He's been tweeting hilarious videos of himself quarantining at home because that's what a responsible American citizen ought to be doing. And in the middle of this, he gets the news that, surprise, WWE is now an essential business in the state of Florida, and he's expected to, uh, 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 you know, what's the word, report to work. (laughs) He gave a a literal middle finger up on Twitter, so shout out to that guy. (laughs) Okay, so... Now we're into the meat of the uh, podcast episode. Jay. Yeah. You wanted to talk about 1969. Yeah, the year. Which was 51 years ago. Yeah. Now. So last year would have been the appropriate time because it was like, you know, the 50 year anniversary and all that shit. In my opinion, there's always an appropriate time to talk about 1969. It's a watershed year. It is the beginning of the end of so many things and um, the uh, beginning of the beginning of so many things. Okay, so give us a a preview. With In Your Mind's Eye, how does baseball relate? You know, based on the conversation we just had, right? Like, we need baseball to open up safely yeah. to give Americans hope and a sense of national unity. Yeah. How does baseball in the year of 1969 relate to that theme? You have 90 seconds. Go! Because baseball is such a... In 1969, baseball was such a uh, a, a dinosaur. Um, uh, you know, like it, it, it represented and symbolized, it, symbolized the old traditional American culture which had, which was literally in that year being torn to shreds, um, and and you know, '69 uh, uh, envisions so much of where American culture and American society will be going in the future, and symbolizes the end of so many really important um, uh, values and and uh, uh, practices and belief systems of the old America. That uh, it's 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 a weird artifact because although baseball changes somewhat substantially in the year 1969 for specific reasons that we can talk about a little bit later on. Um, and it looks different. The game looks different in 1969, even compared to 1968. It is still the, the American pastime that symbolizes all of these sort of core American values uh, at a time in which, especially for Nixon conservatives and the so-called silent majority, Nixon's first year as president, 1969, um, they needed those things, and they would fall back on those things. But we have a very unusual World Series between the Baltimore Orioles and the New York Mets. The Orioles, of course, went and won in 1966. But for the amazing Mets to be there is pretty amazing in and of itself. And for all the sort of venerable teams of the classic baseball era, Dodgers, Giants, Yankees, none of these to be in the fall classic in 1969, I think as well shows that baseball is changing. Baseball looks different. Right. But it's sort of it's like it both symbolizes the breakdown and the newness of the age of Aquarius 1969, 
but it also is the bridge to the past in a way. So it's of both sides of the coin, if you will. It's the Jekyll and Hyde of 1969 that kind of holds things together a little bit. So, so opening day. What? Yeah. April, April 8, 1969. What's happening in America? Well, um, I mean, I could run down. I can give you a full uh, uh, rundown of some of the important cultural, political uh, events of 1969. I think it would. I want to do it a little bit chronologically. So you mentioned Nixon. Talk a little bit about Nixon. Talk about Vietnam. Let's hold off on the whole moon Woodstock shit. Well, yeah, let's go. I can start chronologically. I, yeah. I have this let's organized go, chronologically. Like I'm, I'm living. But I've got two. I've got two historical items before Nixon is sworn in on January fifteenth, nineteen sixty nine. Go for so, it. So before that, two significant events that I want that I want to lay out here. Um, the first Led Zeppelin album comes out on January twelfth, nineteen sixty nine. Okay. The same day, Super Bowl three, one of the biggest upsets in. Football, American football history, the New York Jets, Joe Namath guarantees a win. They beat the powerhouse Baltimore Colts. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. Stop, 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 stop. That's January 12th, 1969. You're telling me that the Jets and the Mets won in the same calendar year. Bookends. Bookends. Against Baltimore. Yeah. Both against Baltimore. Both against Baltimore. Oh, my God. God. Yeah, and there's a lot of other sports upsets as well. I mean, you know, um, the Ohio State Buckeyes, who had won the national championship, they actually officially won the national championship on June 1st, 1969, the first day of 1969. Um, Their tremendous winning streak ends the next in the fall of 1969, and the Texas Longhorns actually win the national championship. There's a couple of other sports upsets going on, but those are the two big ones. The Mets. Did they uh, beat USC in the Rose Bowl? Uh, Ohio State beat USC in Rose Bowl, and and a young running back named OJ Simpson was the star of that USC Trojans team. Um, so so okay, so January twelfth, the first Led Zeppelin album is released, uh, and then the Jets win Super Bowl three and a huge upset over the Colts. And then three days later, January fifteenth, Richard Milhouse Nixon from Whittier, California, is sworn in as the thirty seventh president of the United States of America. On January 26th, he was a Quaker. Yeah, he, he was a fascinating, in so many interesting, weird ways, rabid football fan, by the way. Um, uh, was never good enough to play, but a rabid football fan. And, uh, and a fascinating guy that I, when I teach the presidency, I, I, I kind of do a, a thick profile of a couple of different presidents, and Nixon's one of them. Um, so he's sworn in as the 37th president on January 15th. Uh, on January 26, 1969, Elvis goes to Memphis, and he begins the Elvis in Memphis resurgence, which is very important to uh, Elvis fans and the Elvis chronology. Elvis had been in decline throughout much of the 1960s and uh, in you know, uh, uh, you know, cheesy, uh, campy Hollywood films. Um, his albums weren't selling as well. He was as in bad of a decline as the Beach Boys at this time. And he goes to Memphis sort of uh, haggard and, and ragged and, and, and sort of like a phoenix rising, um, has a brief moment of a tremendous resurgence. And that begins in January 26th when he goes to Memphis to record uh, what will become two albums. 
slowdown. What I'm getting from We're not out of January, though. We're not even out of January. Can I give you <laughs> we'll get out of January? Let me give you one more and then we're out of January, okay? Okay. I got oh, wait, what albums? Which albums? Uh, Elvis in Memphis and then um, Elvis from Memphis. They both have Memphis in the title. I am not okay. a huge <laughs> fan, so I don't I don't recall are, specifically. Are you saying that baseball the resurgence of baseball corresponds with the resurgence of American small C conservatism. Well, let's return back to that because I think that that's a that's a working thesis. That's a working thesis right now, and we haven't really nailed it down yet. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, so okay. So Elvis goes to Memphis January twenty sixth. Four days later, January thirtieth, the Beatles make their last public performance on a rooftop in London. That's the oh. third most watched YouTube video by Drunk Joel's. Nice. <laughs> in February, on February 8th of 1969, the last weekly issue of the Saturday Evening Post, after 147 years of weekly issues. The Saturday Evening Post, 147 years. The last weekly issue. The next day, February 9th, 1969, is the first flight of a Boeing 747 jumbo jet. Cool. The first passenger flight will be later this year. Uh, and February 24th, a little bit later in the in the month, is a very important Supreme Court case, Tinker v. Des Moines uh, Independent School District, which asserts that the First Amendment free speech right is applicable in public schools. This was over a Vietnam War protest from students at a school in a public school in Des Moines. Um, March, March 10th, 1969, The Godfather is published. March 20th, 1969, Lennon and Yoko are married in Gibraltar. March 28th, 1969, Dwight D. Eisenhower dies. And April 8th, uh, baseball opens up and four teams are previewed for the first time. It's an expansion year and four brand new teams. In the AL, you have the Seattle Pilots and the um, Kansas City Royals. And in the NL, you have the San Diego Padres and the uh, great and amazing, my all-time favorite team, the Montreal Expos. Uh, Expos hat, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Right now, Jay is wearing an Expos hat. This is, this is a 69 version. It's a all 100% wool from the first year. I'm wearing the inaugural 1969 Montreal Expos hat. Now, this is a pro. Jay, I just want to I want to tell you, I'm also a big Expos fan. Right. I just want I want you to know that. Sam, I want you to know that I will forever love you in my heart. Can I tell a story right now? Can I just pause and tell a story? This is a true fucking story. In, in 2013, I had a dream that the Montreal Expos won the World Series, and I was in the dugout at the end of Game 7, and all of the great Montreal Expos were there. Um, uh, uh, Kid Dawson and Hawk and Andre Scalaragra and Moises Alou and Larry Walker, all the great Montreal Expos were there. Rusty Staub, right? Um, and we were all crying and, and uh, you know, champagne was being thrown on us and everything. And it was a great <laughs> moment. It was this amazing moment. And I woke up from that dream. I woke up and my pillow was soaking in tears. I was actually crying, physically <laughs> crying. And that day was a terrible day. It was a sad day. Oh, I, yeah. Because I was so bummed. And yeah. I, I showed Joel this the other day. I have 
flag of the 1994 Montreal Expos World Series <laughs> champions. And that flag bothers me, actually, even though I, I have it up, because it, it's like it reminds me of the pain in my heart of that 1994 right. season. What could have um, been? Well, it could have been the first time there wasn't a World Series in 90 years. 90 fucking years! Yeah, I grew up in uh, central Vermont, and I used to go to Expos games as a kid because that was the closest awesome. um, ballpark to where I grew up. Olympic Stadium in the 90s? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, nice. nice. Yeah, it was good. It, it was, and, you know, tickets were so cheap. Yes, yeah. you know the Canadian dollar was super weak back then, and you could go and pay like fifteen American dollars and sit like right behind the the visitors or the you know the dugout, like right on the field. It was incredible. Nice. My favorite spot on a on a in a stadium is as close to the third base bag as I can get. I I don't like the first base side. The third base side is that's the angle that I want. A little bit set on on the um. Uh, outside of the third base bag. Why? So, so in very shallow infield. I think that's the, my favorite perspective on a game. Interesting. I'm a big first base bag guy. But that's so I can talk shit to Anthony Wizzo because I hate Anthony Wizzo. Yeah, I like to sit right behind the on-deck circle of the team that I'm not rooting for. Right. So that I can heckle people when they're on deck. <laughs> like guess- that, for me, that is like, the best thing about baseball is sitting behind the on-deck circle and just heckling people right before they go up to bed. Yeah, I, I've only heckled one player once in my life. It was uh, at my premium spot, real close to the third base bag, just in very, very shallow outfield at the Metrodome. The Minnesota Twins were playing the New York Yankees. And A-Rod was... Yeah! third base and the and the crowd was really quiet because the Yankees were up and they were looking to score again and I just stood up and yelled uh uh hey Alex your panty line is showing and I could see a <laughs> grin on his face it was a weird heckle uh, for sure I'm not a heckler by any stretch of the imagination and I don't even know what overcame me at that moment but <laughs> Alex Rodriguez your yeah. hatred of God damn, Alex Rodriguez. I, I actually so like I like A Rod. I hate the Yankees. Anti A Rod, anti Yankees podcast. I have a sneaking suspicion A Rod is a good person that I would probably get. Along. Oh, definitely <laughs> no. not. No, he's not. I one time I one time heckled A Rod so bad in the on deck circle that they yanked him in the seventh inning. <laughs> oh, wow. I like I got him taken out of the game because I was so terrible to him. Nice. <laughs> All right, we're gonna continue right. on this chronology. Yeah, yeah, but but you, I want I want you to frame it. Yeah, I want you to frame it with it's it's 1969. America is coming apart at the seams. Yes, and then baseball is like, yo, let's add some division. Yes, exactly. So so okay, so all the things that I said, baseball opens on April. Uh, 8th, 1969, and the season begins. Um, and the next day, uh, the Harvard Administration Building is seized by 300 uh, SDS protesters, um, Students for a Democratic Society, uh, who hold the administration building um, against uh, police uh, tear gas and guns. Over 45 people are injured uh, before that protest is put down. And the administration building is is uh, taken away from the SDS 
protesters. Um, a little bit later in the month there, uh, de Gaulle steps down in France, big moment in France. Then we begin early May. May 10th is the Zip to Zap uh, music festival that portends Woodstock. Before Woodstock, 2,000 hippies descended <laughs> No, in North Dakota. Oh. In, before Woodstock, on March 10th, uh, 1969, 2,000 hippies descend on a very tiny little town in North Dakota called Zap, Z-A-P, and they called it the Zip to Zap Music Festival. 2,000 hippies. Um, it was shut down by the police. Uh, there was some protesting and rioting going on, uh, and it portends to um, Woodstock a little bit later in the year. Another significant event happens on five days later, on May 15th, although nobody knows it until the 1980s. A teenager in St. Louis dies mysteriously, and nobody knows how he dies. Only in 1985 do people realize that he is the first death of HIV-AIDS in America. The next day, on May 16th, the Soviets land on Venus. Uh, a satellite. Not yep. humans. The not, humans not, would have like, died. I know that. I know yeah. my science. Yeah, it was a satellite probe, lands on, on Venus. Um, and May 22nd, the Apollo 10 lunar module uh, okay. lifts off and gets within 15,000 meters of the lunar surface. So this was a test run for the landing of the moon. And they got very, very close to the lunar surface in order to test everything out, and then they went back. That's the Apollo 10 flight on May 22nd. On May 25th, the movie Midnight Cowboy is released. Midnight Cowboy based off of a novel yeah. by James Leo Hirlihy. Uh, and Midnight Cowboy is, to this date and probably forever will be, the only Best Picture Oscar winner that was rated X. It was an X-rated film that won Best Picture. Oh, yeah. Midnight in Paris. Or Last Tango in Paris. Last yeah. Tango in Paris in the 70s. Yeah. Not win. Yeah, didn't win Best nope. Picture. Nobody time. wants Pat Mullen Brando having sex. Doing more than having sex, like putting cheese in people's orifices. It's yeah. really <sighs> Anyway, close second. Close second there. Yeah. 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 The next day, May 25th, Midnight Cowboys released on May 26th. Uh, hold up. Yeah. How much nudity is there in Midnight Cowboy? Not that much. See, the right. X-ray right. rating came out of... guy who's having... Gay sex in New York. That's also, it. A lot of swearing. So uh, the the a MP lot of swearing. Yeah, the MPPA, uh, which is the rating system, begins out of the the death of the production code. I'm not going to go into all the details yeah, here. Please don't. Uh, <laughs> but beginning 1967, and then in about 1969, 68, 69, the the rating system is fully instituted. And uh, there was no PG-13. That comes after Jaws. Jaws influences the PG-13 rating. Um, but there was G, PG, R, and X. And X rating was not for pornographic material, as our NC-17 rating is today. It's mostly for uh, pornographic soft porn material. Um, the X rating was for anything that would be deemed, like, very immoral, like excessive swearing um, or, you know, very sort of satanic ritual kind of stuff or whatever it might be. So it was a lot of swearing and it was the homosexual content as well that gave Midnight Cowboy an X rating. Okay. Keep going with your timeline. Okay. So the next day, May 26th. I have so many goddamn questions that I'm not asking right now. Keep going. <laughs> the next day, May 26th, 
Yoko and Lenin, John Lennon, begin the bed-in in Amsterdam, the famous protest against war in which they just simply sleep in a bed and have people photograph them. That lasts until June 2nd. Um, so from May 26th to June 2nd, Yoko and Lennon are in a bed. Who's on top of the A.O. West on June 2nd? <laughs> Who's on top of what? The A.O. West on June 2nd. I don't know. That happens to be my birthday, though, June 2nd. Um, yeah. Sweet. So June 18th to June 22nd, 1969, the Students for a Democratic Society hold a national convention that turns into a fucking shit show, an absolute collapse, and the weathermen seize control of the SDS office. And the weathermen... Led by Mike Trapp. What's that? The weathermen trapped. Yeah. Sorry. Now we're just telling dumb jokes. No worries. No worries. Yep. Mike Trout reference. Um, so they seize control of the Students and Democratic Society office and effectively seize control of the far left in America, the weathermen. They began a series of bombings and uh, domestic terrorist acts um, that um, sort of, you know, heightened the level of um, discord between the far left and the establishment in America at this time. Which is not relevant to today at all. <laughs> well, go on. In an interesting way, I see a lot of the, more of this actually on the right than on the left in our world today. Um, but I, I do think that we, we're in a remarkably strange, hyper-polarized political environment in which the extreme left and right, um, there is a, the middle is being torn asunder. Liberalism is being attacked on all sides. Liberalism is being attacked by the left progressives. Liberalism is continuing to be attacked by conservatives, even though conservatives are liberals. They're just liberals in different ways. And so, um, and we have obviously reached a kind of apotheosis of a, a rise in populism globally, not just in the United States of America, European countries, all over the world, populism is on the march. And uh, there is an alt-right populism there is a far left populism, and um, both of them are kind of apocalypse seekers, if you will. Um, oh. <laughs> uh. oh. and, and interested in the world burning, there are accelerationists on both the extreme left and the extreme right. By accelerationists, I mean those who, you know, they would want, they like people on the left who want, I know friends of mine who, who did vote for Donald Trump even though they're on the very far left anti-capitalist Marxist because they want the world to burn faster and hotter in yep. order for them to build something back up again. Yeah, so, those are the folks that I've got the least amount of uh, uh, patience for, honestly. But, yeah. but I want The podcast is breaking up here. Oh, yeah. You can't hear them either. Okay. <laughs> oh. Joel, Joel. Up. Say keep going. All right. Uh, if Joel can hear us, you should probably disconnect and reconnect, and I'll keep going with the chronology. How about that? Are you with me, Sam? Lost both of you. No, I, I can hear you. Oh, you can hear me. Oh, yeah. yeah. So keep going. Yeah, yeah. Okay. You, you okay, Sam? 
Yeah, right. I can hear you. Sorry, I thought that I had lost you for a second there, but I can okay. Well, let's uh, you keep in communication with me while I do this list, and we'll yeah, see how far. Sure. <laughs> okay. So where do we leave off? The SDS convention, the Weather Underground, or the Weathermen uh, sees yeah. the far left in America. On June twenty second, the last day of the SDS National Co Convention, the Cuyahoga River is on fire in Cleveland, uh, very famously, cool. which do, yeah. uh, which led to uh, super super max projects from the EPA and other things. Um, it led to the creation of the EPA. That same day, June twenty second, the, the last day of the SDS National Conference and the Cuyahoga River being on fire. Over in London, uh, Judy Garland.